48-hour art check. Best of podcast. We go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday on YouTube. 9 p.m. California time, and you can join us there live in the chats or watch them later. You can always check things out at coreykerr.com slash 48HR. We take the best conversations from those live streams and rip them and put them into this podcast. Today's topic is surviving the automation apocalypse, the impending uh, automation wave that's going to hit and is already hitting the art world and just going to kind of spread across all industries pretty quickly. Um, and so today I thought it would be cool if we kind of continue our conversation. Corey, I hope you actually chime in on this because this is one of your specialties, so... Um, definitely don't feel like you have to be quiet on this one. If, if um, by specialty you mean uh, weird obsession, sure. Yeah, but I think it's a fair <laughs> obsession, and it makes sense that it's an obsession because it's something that's coming, and it's not quite, you know, there's some fun kind of wild theories about, you know, full-out, you know, Terminator 2-style, you know, automation right. taking over humanity. But then there's the reality that's a little more cold and um, is just like, hey, this computer can do your job 20 times faster. Yeah. And it doesn't have a soul or a personality. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, we thought it would be good to kind of get into tactics for artists to kind of survive it. Like, because um, a lot of this stuff is coming. Um, Corey touched on this last time. There are programs being developed and, and, that have already been made that can mimic um, a style that you draw in and then replicate it on any shape that you create very convincingly. There, there, um, are, there are programs that exist that if they have 20 minutes of audio of you speaking, uh, they can replicate your voice in any emotion and any intonation at any speed. Yeah. I mean, so there's some wild technology out there. And so if you feel like, yeah, but that's, they're not going to be able to do this certain um, technique or skill um, that I do on, on Photoshop myself or that I do, you know, traditionally myself, um, I, I would be leery of making that kind of claim because, once again, you know, you, you could end up where a lot of people who were like experts in Corel Draw ended up. Um, once Corel Draw like disappeared and wasn't the main thing anymore, um, and so on. I mean, there's a million examples of that. I, I think we even mentioned MySpace. Like, you could be the the giant on MySpace who uh, didn't see another route coming, and when when MySpace kind of went under, um, so does that mass following, and and you know, so so I think it's pretty applicable to us because this is going to be hitting our industry going to be affecting you know wages in our industry and so um so well, yeah I thought and, and one, of, one of the things one of the things that i think is important to realize is that um creatives are set up uh in a in a significantly better situation than a lot of other fields and so if you're in a creative field right now um you're in a better position than in a lot of fields that pay better today um, because, um, you know, in the past with the industrial revolution or whatever, we've paid, we've paid for the sacrifice of your body. Right. And so, you know, things, things that will wear you down, you know, or whatever. And we're slowly shifting over to, 
um, to a power dynamic where, you know, um, the influence that you have and the connections that you make are, are kind of what give you the ability to earn. Um, and I think, and this is, this is a wild stab in the dark, but I think it will continue to shift from the sacrifice of your body to the sacrifice of your relationships to um, moving into those that can create. Um, and I'm not talking about execute. I'm talking about create. And so um, anything, that, anything that is difficult for a computer or a robot to do is going to become more rare as um, the, the supply of ready, ready labor um, to solve those easy or repetitive pattern problems um, increases um, and the workforce shifts to maintaining those type of machines and programs then uh, the type of thing that adds humanity to something, the, the creativity, the vulnerability, um, the storytelling, um, the, the, you know, the ability to, to relate with empathy um, you know, and feel emotion, those are all going to become more rare as everything else becomes more plentiful. And, and just simple supply and demand, the rarity of something drives the, drives the price up. That's how like scarcity works. And so my whole premise is not that I'm freaked out that this is happening, um, but that I don't think enough people are thinking about positioning themselves in such a way to be able to um, survive it well. Agreed. Yeah, and I, I would agree too. It's not all doom and gloom. In fact, it might actually bode well for a lot of creatives. Um, but I do think, you know, my main thing is also that it's definitely not something that bodes well if it's ignored. <laughs> right. Um, because like I said, um, you know, and we touched on this a little bit in, in the last uh, last episode, but maybe we can delve into it. But I think one of the main things I was starting with is um, making sure that you as a creative and as an artist are using tools and not crutches. And so I was wondering if, if you guys want to kind of chime in on that. Um, some, some recommendations of how uh, people can use software, like give examples of kind of both. Like what would be an example of someone using software as like a crutch um, that then if that software is replaced, that person's out of a job um, versus like as a tool? Uh, well, I think, I think one of the easiest examples to understand is, is anything that, <clears throat> anything that the software has automated that you don't understand. And so, you know, if you're, um, I'll call it a business, but it's really just outright theft most of the time. Um, if your business is based on like, say, for example, um, the image trace in, in Illustrator, and you don't know how to do that yourself. You don't know how to work the pen tool. You don't know how to draw on a, on a Cintiq or, or whatever. Um, and you're just taking images auto, you know, auto tracing them and then, and then maybe changing a color here or there. Um, that's a huge crutch. And so I think, I think as a template, that's an interesting way to look at anything is, um, anytime you're using something and you don't know how to do that thing, um, without that shortcut or that process or that macro or whatever, um, you don't, you don't know it well enough to be able to survive it going away. Um, and so yeah. there's a, there's a lot of different examples that are starting to kind of pop into my head, content aware fill and, and, uh, you know, all, all of that stuff where it's like you push a button and it does it for you, which is wonderful. But as soon as 
something happens to take that away from you and you don't know what button to push, what do you do then? Yeah. And not, not just that. I mean, um, if, if you're used to kind of pushing buttons, um, the second that button upgrades and that button's no longer, no longer necessary, it's like, you know, there might be other applications for the thing that you're applying, you know, that like the logic of it, the thought of it. Um, but you've missed the whole thought and logic of it by just kind of learning the button. Right. And so, um, you know, and I, I think a perfect example of that is in like manufacturing, um, you know, a lot of the jobs were in essence kind of pushing a button, <laughs> right. um, kind of assembly line. And so, uh, you know, which, which then became more and more ob- automated. But when you're doing assembly line work, you just do a repetitive action over and over again. And it would be a highly skilled action, but without the whole line, it, it, it kind of became, it's, it's hard to find value in it, um, which is unfortunate because, sure, you know, there is skill to it. Yeah. But, um, but so you want to think about like when you're working on Photoshop, it's like you're kind of running an assembly line. And if you don't know what all of those components are doing and why they're doing it, um, you're really missing out on the bigger knowledge that you're going to need to carry with you if like the whole thing gets automated. Yeah. And I, and I do, I do want to point out, um, no, nobody here is saying that using shortcuts and using software and using automated processes is, is bad. We're not troglodytes. Like the, the idea is um, if, if you figure out a, a shorter way to do something and it's something that, um, you know, is necessary, but doesn't require your humanity to produce, for example, if like flatting an image, you know, if there's a faster way to flat an image, go for it. Right. Um, but the idea is if you need to understand what the computer is doing. And the reason for that is because when things change, because that's the one guaranteed thing that we have in this universe is that everything is in a constant state of change. When they change, you understand the process so that you can apply your understanding to the new tools. And so, you know, if I know how to, if I know how to ink traditionally, right. Um, but I don't understand anything about like layers or uh, blending modes or selections or marquees or anything like that. Um, I've got a steep learning curve. But if I understand, um, you know, the foundational stuff, and then all of a sudden Photoshop goes away, my inking ability, my my painting ability, my photography ability, my compositional ability doesn't go away. I still have that, and yeah. uh, and I can take what I knew from that from that program that now doesn't exist. And I can apply it, apply it to the new program, the new process, and I can say, okay, I know the result that I want to get, and I know how to get there traditionally and several different ways digitally, and I understand those processes well enough to be able to do that. How do I use this new tool? You're going to be fine. But if you're like, nope, in Quark, I press F2, and then I don't know what it does, but it, it does what I need it to do, right? It ends up with the result I want, but I don't understand the steps that happen with F2. And then Quark goes away and F2 is assigned to a completely new thing. And you're like, I don't know how to get from there to here. Yeah. So that, yeah, And that's really problematic. Um, so I, I would definitely say that's a pretty good, good example of kind of what not to do um, and what to do. So like really delving into the why um, of what you're doing when you're doing it and when you're inevitably streamlining it. If you're an intelligent artist, you're going to take whatever path you need to to kind of get the result you need. 
Um, especially if you're, uh, you know, on a time clock, you're on, on, you know, on a clock and, and under the gun to hit a deadline for, for pay or for a client. Um, cause beautiful artwork after deadline quite often equates to like completely useless to the employer, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, good to utilize these shortcuts and stuff, but keep in mind, like, you want to know the why, like, what's it doing? What is it emulating? Like, that's a good thing to think, too. Um, like, I actually find that people who've taken even traditional photography, which is, is kind of dying out, but I still think it should be a, 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 one of the foundations in, in uh, especially, you know, graphic design classes and stuff like that, um, because you should actually have one point where you have to develop film and, and like smell the terrible emulsion and stuff and create <laughs> high contrast manually. Because I think by doing that, it makes you realize the logic of what Photoshop is emulating, like right. what it's doing, what it's making better. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, but at least having a rough understanding of it is going to be something you can carry with you. Um, the logic of it's not going to go away. And that's a beauty of like the human brain. They can't take your logic, you know, they can't take your reasoning capacity. Um, what they can take is your skill. Like, so like if it's a technique that's just repetitive task, um, it's pretty much, it's really dangerous if that's like something you're completely relying on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like Scott at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm for I for one am going to embrace my robotic overlords and make it work for me because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take and uh, that software that Corey was talking about that can if you talk for 20 minutes that can duplicate your voice. Yeah, I'm going to create a robot version of myself, have something teach my style. I'm going to have it do all my client work so I can do <laughs> personal work. Yep, and so I'll just have a robot doing all my work. Now that's assuming that I that. I own myself as my own intellectual property, so no one else can take me <laughs> and make a robot of me and do my style and 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 you know perpetrate me and, and <laughs> take all my work away from me. But yeah, I mean, I, my biggest problem was I don't have enough time to do all the stuff I want to do, so I'm building a robot of myself. Yeah, and that's that's and a soup. We should we should pin that as a future topic. Um, you know what what actually is. Uh, you and and what rights do you have and yeah. how are those going to be threatened in the future because that is a hot button issue right now because yeah. uh, Mickey Mouse is up soon right on the on his copyright you know no way they're going there's no way I mean I I you know oh I know that's what I'm saying every time he's come up uh, US copyright law has drastically changed to bend to the will of the mouse yeah so. Okay. The mouse has power, and actually, really, like anybody who's super defensive of Disney, understand we all prior fans of at least one Disney film. I think I think yeah. all of us probably many of them, and really admire the animators and stuff. But look a little bit into the history of how much the mouse crushed indie cartoonists in the seventies, and and uh, also how they treated the nine old men. You might change your your super defensiveness of Disney. Disney's great, but there's some dark seediness to Disney, like all big companies. You yeah, know? and I think that's kind of true of everything. Um, you know, you can, uh, I can, I can love the product and hate the process. You know, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy a lot of the things that have been made. I, 
don't necessarily agree with a lot of the ways that, that they have been produced. But but we're, we're kind of digressing. Um, I just think that would be an interesting topic to kind of tackle at some point. Um, what's I do think one thing we can do from from to kind of get us back on the rails from what Scott was saying is um, the making a robot of yourself also does apply a little bit to what we're talking about because that gets into adaptability with yeah. new technology. And so we, we kind of touched on this a little bit too before, but I, I would think that um, like, do you guys, I mean, we've all been kind of doing art for a while, so maybe we should just share a little bit of our own adaptability within the industry and our time and the shifts in programs and the shifts in social media and stuff, just to kind of, as an example of, I think the kind of mindset that, I know I, for myself, probably don't have enough of and need to constantly work on growing, like, kind of an adaptability. But um, do you do you have any examples of, like, times where something shifted drastically in, in w- with automation or with, like, a new program where you've had to, like, completely adapt? Yeah, uh, well, I... I- I have a good example. Um, I was an art director uh, years ago, and we had a catalog, like a 300-page catalog that we put out that was full of um, like musical instruments and accessories, which which are a little bit difficult to clip because a lot of them are chrome, um, and so they're they're like totally reflective. And sometimes yeah. the value of the highlight is is the same as the value of the background, or or so close that it becomes. It, be, it becomes very difficult to do it uh, in an automated way. And this, I'm talking about eight years ago, um, yeah. maybe nine years ago. And so um, when, when this happened, I remember um, I was able to leverage the manpower that it took to be able to clip uh, those things. And so here's, here's a little side story. If you ever want to, um, if you're ever trying to get people to understand what's going on and there's a boring process, that is that is really labor intensive. Film it and then make the people with the money watch that. And what they will do is they will immediately be like, "Okay, please make this stop, and you can have whatever you want." I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but as for me, when I was like, "I need another person," they're like, "You have way too many people already." I was like, "Well, let me show you what this person does for uh, twenty six hours a week," and uh, and I showed them thirty five seconds of them clipping the background out of a drum set. And they were like, um, okay, you can have another person and let's, let's give Jason a raise. <laughs> it's like, okay, good. And so, um, but what happened is I started to gain a little bit of pride in, in what I could do and what my team could do in kind of photo manipulation and, and compositing and things like that. And then Adobe Photoshop had the audacity to upgrade and increase the tools to the point where like lay people could do what we could do. And my initial reaction to that was like, no, I want to keep this secret knowledge to myself. I don't want, you know, everybody to have it. And then I remember, I remembered as I felt that I felt like that was my initial kind of knee jerk reaction. But then there's something about that emotion that I was like, that's, that's a stupid way of thinking. Because I remember years prior to that, when um, DSLRs started shooting video, um, I was working at a video company and we shot, we shot on film, we shot on tape and we were starting to shoot to hard drive, but the cameras cost anywhere from 20,000 to $120,000 a piece. And then all of yeah. a sudden Canon and Panasonic 
and Sony and uh, all these guys started coming out and saying, hey, for like three to five thousand dollars, you too can shoot HD, you know, full resolution video, you know, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of the older guys in my shop were like, that's it. It's over. It's done. Um, you know, we're all we're all shot because they were fixated on the price of the tools being the barrier to entry. Like, you know, yeah. as long as you need a, a loan the size of your house to be able to get the equipment, it's going to keep a Joe, Joe Plummer out of this business. But now that anybody can pick it up, you know, um, you know, Joe Plummer can pick it up too. And they were like, blah, blah, blah. And I remember about two months later, one of them saying, hey, nothing's changed in the market. Yeah. And I've realized that it's actually your ability and your skills and your knowledge and your experience that's more important than the tools. And so as soon as as soon as I had that knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, no, now everybody's going to be able – I don't know why I was so protective of this process. Now everybody's going to be able to knock the background out because they've got content-aware fill and they've got subject, you know, subject recognition and you yeah. know all this stuff. Then I was like – I actually hate doing that. So that's fine. They can, you know, everybody can take that on and then I will go learn bigger and better things with the experience that I have and with the, the knowledge that I have, because just because like, like a good camera doth not a photographer make, right. You just because you can take a picture doesn't mean you're good at it. Just because yeah, exactly. you own Photoshop doesn't mean you're good at it. Just because you can use processes in Photoshop doesn't mean that you can come up with a decent idea. So there, there are, there are things that transcend the tools and those are the things that I think we should pay attention to because the tools, they're going to come and go. They're going to change. They're going to get better. They're going to get faster. They're going to get automated. They're going to get destroyed. They're going to get bought out and then deleted, yeah. you know, um, but your, your things that transcend those tools, you get to take that with you into whatever situation yeah. you move into. And what's interesting is like, um, even with content and where Phil, there's always like, I mean, at some point it's going to be seamless, but it still has issues. And so getting the old clone stamp tool <laughs> yeah. and knowing how to do that and draw proper masks <clears throat> still has a lot of vast application. And then the neat thing is if you take just kind of a broad view, um, the majority of what you're doing is still pen tool work. And so it's like the, the better you get at the pen tool, um, the better you're going to be on Illustrator, the better you're going to be with After Effects, the better you're going to be with all of these programs that utilize a pen tool. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and if that changes, um, you've still developed like a skill that can also fix when the computers mess up, when the automation messes up, um, which is surprisingly often. However, I do think it's going to get better and better. And I think you're right about the fact that. Um, I think oh uh, Squatchy in the chats is saying he uh, he it took him ten years to jump on Photoshop in the tattoo world, which I know really uh, actually very recently started hitting the tattooing industry. Um, and using it seemed like so much to learn, but in order to advance, he uh, adapted. And now he said being able to work digitally to make stencils, everything's improved, which I can only imagine. And he was saying before they were kind of doing paste up and using scissors and tape right. and light boxes. Um, but what's neat is like all that knowledge you gain from doing paste up when you, you know the logic of what you're trying to do. Right. When, and that's one of the hardest things to teach kids actually, um, you know, in college is like when, when you're teaching a digital program that they've never used before, 
It's like teaching them the question to ask, yeah. not the tool. Because a lot of the time they're going to find the tool by asking the right question, but they don't know what their objective is. Then they could learn every tool in the book and not know how to use it in application. Um, and you'll you'll recognize this type of person because this type of person generally, like you know anybody who's you know kind of gotten their their hands dirty in digital, it's like you'll try something. And there's 10 ways to do it, you know? And um, I, I find that a lot of people who are kind of stuck in a, in a crutch versus tool mentality will get really thrown off when someone else has a different way. Or, um, or they're asking you for the right way. Yeah. What, what is yeah. the right way to do this? I get this question all the time. For the first half of each semester, I get yeah. the question like, uh, hey, uh, how, what is the right way to do this? And I say, uh, well, as long as you're not breaking copyright infringement you know, or, or intellectual property, um, the way that you feel like doing it at the time that gets you the results that you want. Here, yeah. let me show you six different ways to do it. Did any yeah. of those kind of strike a fancy? Because do that one. It doesn't matter. Um, another another thing, and this is kind of reminding me of something that Scott did a video on, I think, um, where you were Scott, you were taking was it microns or technical pens, and you were cutting them at a diagonal. Yeah, that's uh, Vincent De Porter's uh, technique that he. Uh, I think I may have just shown this in another thing, but uh, so this illustration, I don't know if you can see this. This is Vincent's work. He used cool. to be the artist on SpongeBob Comics. Yeah, it might get in the glare here. But little, you can bit, see all the different it. line weights. You see all that line weight? That's actually a micron. So what he does is, and I'm not, I've, I've played around with it a little bit, but I, I need to actually have see him do it in person. But he breaks the microns. He, like, slices them a couple different times so that he can actually use a micron like like you would like a brush or whatever and get the, the different line weights yeah. and also, and it's cool. And maybe they, you would think maybe there's a brush that's kind of like that. I don't know that's already just like that, but I don't know if it exists, but because microns are, are a little harder and solid, it, it's, you know, I don't know if I, is it less forgiving or more forgiving? I don't know what the, but, but like with a, with a brush pen, sometimes it's really hard to get that control. But with, yeah. when you break those microns, it's a little, it's a little bit easier as long as you get the, the hang of it. But he just like does amazing work with that. That's amazing. Yeah. And it my, sounds like a sweet spot between a nib and a brush, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And my, and my point is, he has to understand those tools at another level. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I know what the micron is supposed to do. And that's what I use it for. But then you have somebody who's like, they know what it's supposed to do so well that they also know why and how it does that and how they can use that to their advantage. And this is this is an important thing. When I was first learning Photoshop, I remember somebody looking over my shoulder who knew what they were doing and was very well trained. And they're like, how did you get it to do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I was just, just been like, I noticed that this tool does this thing. And so I figured if I combine that with this, then it would do X or whatever. And they're like, that's not supposed to do that. And I'm like, I know, but it does that because of the following things. And they're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But like, you're making that software do stuff. It's not intended to do. That's a good place to be in is if you can understand a tool enough that you can break it to your benefit or that you can, you can Mm -hmm. manipulate it to your benefit. You can say, you know what? I'm going to cut those microns. You know, I'm going to, uh, you know, Ryan Otley, he, he takes a, he, he takes a, these, these, uh, pop, popska pens, um, like this. He showed me this at a con one time and, uh, 
you load up the tip and then you blow on it like a like a little puff of air and it gives you this explosion of white like that's not what the marker's supposed to do that's that's an error you know if the marker drips or the marker you know like splatters it's not supposed to do that but like he knew it well enough and i think that's true of whether you're talking physical or digital or or whatever yeah. if you can understand not just what the tool does but how and why it does that thing then you can use it for things that it was never intended to do. And and it's funny because oftentimes Photoshop, Illustrator, Quark, uh, Premiere, After Effects, whatever, like After Effects was not initially intended to be an animation program, right? Yeah. They, they, they're just like, well, there's some keyframes in there because I was using Vegas video to animate. And people are like, how on earth are you doing that? I'm like, well, it's got keyframe positioning on rotation and position and so I can animate. And they're like, that's super weird. And then you see things like Flash and things like um, After Effects start to embrace the fact that there are these outliers, these rebels that are like, this isn't what this software is for, but yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it this way. I'm going to use it this way because I understand not just what that does, but how and why it does it. And once I can understand how and why, the tool becomes semi-irrelevant because you can replace it. You know, you can you can you can twist it, you can bend it, you can warp it, you can you can break it, and you break it in a specific way, and it does what you want it to do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that gives you more value in the workplace too, because, <clears throat> like for instance, a, just a perfect example is, um, like at my job, we get hit with weird requests from clients all the time that like are of things I've never drawn or in styles I've never worked in before, and. If I didn't have the ability to kind of, we've talked about this before, but this this has a lot to do with the process of logic, to just take a final result and kind of reverse engineer it and go, okay, how did they get to that result? And then reverse engineer it for myself. How can I get there quicker in you know a, a much more limited amount of time and kind of be able to back plan to get that a similar result? Um, maybe not even using the same tools, but using the same theory. And and it's 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 a really valuable skill to have. Um, and just touching on to what you were talking about with with um, with people who know the programs enough to break them. Like I, I actually one of my younger employees, like um, newer employees, not younger, um, had had come to me with a, a shortcut that like he was really embarrassed to bring up because he was worried that like I'd be like offended or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> look, one thing you need to know about me, I'm never going to be offended hearing a better way to do something. Like I want to know quicker ways. Cause like I'm, I'm not perfect. And honestly, if you can shave off five minutes of everything I do, I want that five minutes. Like, um, you know, so I think that's, that's important too. Um, but I do think like adaptability is going to come in handy a lot if, you know, if like, once again, you're an expert in illustrator and Photoshop, like I think we all are and that, that kind of shifts, um, Scott, like, what about you? Like, what are you, what were you going to, Oh, well, I was going to say, um, I mean, just to kind of what you guys are talking about as far as kind of breaking things or using them, figuring out ways to do things for kind of how they weren't intended and then but that could be an opportunity to create something new if you're entrepreneurial or whatever yeah. because like Photoshop was net, was is a photo manipulation software it wasn't meant to draw with people start drawing they try to figure out we figured out a way to make comics in Photoshop but it's not really the right way you're kind of 
you know, trying to put, a, you know, a square peg in a round hole, whereas somebody came along and created Manga Studio, which is specifically designed to, to you know, create comics. So by the same respect, if, if, if somebody was to make a Micron that was already pre-broken like that thing, I mean, maybe you have, you can, you might have a, a, you might have a, a bestseller on your hands or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah. if, if you have the wherewithal or whatever. So, um, I, I was just, that's just kind of what, what I was thinking based on what you guys were talking about. Well, look at, no, that's um, true. Kyle Webster is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle Webster, for those of you that don't know for years, you can't buy them anymore because they're now included. But for years, um, he, he basically was like the default brushes and Photoshop suck. Like for years, in my opinion, and, and most illustrators hold this opinion that I've talked to, um, Adobe didn't recognize that illustrators and cartoonists were using Photoshop. They mm-hmm. just, they, they, even at Adobe max, they, they didn't even have a, an option to tick that box of like, you know, it was like, are you a photographer? Are you a compositor? You know, are you a photo editor? And I'm like, no, I'm a freaking illustrator, man. And I'm using your software. And so are hundreds of thousands of other people like recognize that we exist. And so Kyle Webster goes in there and he goes, these default brushes are terrible, but he understood enough about not just what they were doing, but how and why they were doing it, that he began building his own brushes. Uh, Frendon is another guy who did this. Um, and they started building their own brushes to the point where um, I believe that when he initially did that, he made like six figures that year off of selling brush sets that people are like, yeah, dude, I'll give you 10 bucks for like brushes that are awesome. And he was selling 10, 15 bucks for incredible brushes. And then, and I don't know what the deal is, but um, in the last year or two, Adobe owns all of his brushes now. So who knows what they paid for that? Um, yeah. But but his his work, you know, he he saw he saw that people were going in and manipulating the brushes, and he's like, I bet you that I could figure out a way to save, package, and sell that manipulation. That everybody seen yeah. everybody who knows what they're doing does this, and I could bring that to everyone. And he started doing that and built this market that didn't exist before. And now, you know, he's kind of an Adobe ambassador for uh, the, the forgotten and the unknown uh, people that are illustrating in Photoshop. And finally, Adobe's recognized that, oh, we have this huge blind spot of these people that are, are using our software the way, the way that we didn't intend for them to use it. Because it was basically just supposed to replace the, the darkroom. That was all it was yeah. ever intended to do is... Hey, all that dodging and burning that you guys are doing with chemicals and lights and shadows and stuff, we, we've got a software that can do that now. And then, which is funny because even in comics, like the initial inception of it was like, oh, this is way quicker than a stat cam, yeah. so we can just do what we do on a stat cam like twenty times cheaper, and like we don't have to develop the film, and it's already high contrast. We don't have to clean up all the mess. Like, right. it's pretty easy to clean up, and then like it developed from there, you know. So it's. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say it seems like artists are always the last people that uh, companies want to kind of cater to because look look at like Apple. I mean, in the beginning, before you know iPhone and and i you know and the iPod and all that stuff. I mean, their core the people that were using Macs were artists, yeah. and I felt they kind of turned their backs on artists for a long time because when the iPad came out, look how long it took to get decent pressure sensitivity in like the Apple pencil and everything. Yeah. I mean, we're just now getting that. And how long has the iPad been around? I mean, that should have been to me, that should have been like the first thing, Yeah. you know? So it's like, it seems like we're always the 
the but last then again, uh, you think about it like Cintiq, you know, the Wacom like found that, you know, as a need and addressed it and became a huge company because of it. Yeah. Um, and so now all the larger companies have to try to play catch up to just try to get the same kind of bre- like touch sensitivity that Wacom had been developing for, you know, 10 years or so. So it's like, it's, it's really fascinating. I think the, um, the, the thing that, that this is all tying around is like adaptability, the ability to kind of mark and see chances for innovation. Um, but, but I do want to kind of use this as like a, a bit of a parable. Um, like one thing I've noticed, um, still with younger graphic designers and younger illustrators, like coming straight out of school is the lack of color theory. And, and so this is one of the things I'm, I'm getting at that, that kind of survives automation. I think uh-huh. it's like, if you know what you're doing with color, then when you have access to all the colors, you'll do the right thing. If you have no idea why color's not working, you can have a lot of trouble with color. And so there, there's just some basic things that like, you know, you learn in like your first painting class. Like if you ever take a painting class with like acrylics, you know, on like, I'm going to go with like the worst painting class you could have. Like they're, they're having you do those canvas papers, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, and you know, you're painting, I don't know, like still lives of, of, uh, of like fake flowers from Michaels or something. Um, oh my gosh. but like in that, even at that level of painting class, like when you're working and your colors are becoming mud, they're like, oh, it's because you mixed all these colors together and that creates just mud. And like, if you mix these two complements, it creates kind of a brown. If you mix these two complements, it creates kind of a gray. And like, if you mix both together, it's just this blob of like almost black but it's like a rich black um and when you're painting and your color is not really like showing up and you're like trying to paint like a poppy and you're like why doesn't my flower look like a poppy because i painted all the shadows and the values right and then you know you your instructor would be like don't mix black like why do you have black on your palette (laughs) you know like it shouldn't even be on your palette don't mix white in your palette like that's that's gonna that's gonna wash out all your color and then like for some reason people when they they have that knowledge um hopefully they have that knowledge because when they have that knowledge it's like and you kind of point out like hey it's the same thing it's it's literally the same thing you're you're mixing colors so um like that knowledge like that doesn't go away and so what's beautiful about that is if you're somebody with that kind of knowledge like the foundational knowledge of color and how it all mixes together then when it, when it comes to making good color choices, like you could take 10 times as long cause you're learning the software, but your color is going to look better. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's going to be more vibrant cause you're not mixing a lot of black and a lot of white. And when you mix black, it's the dark and your reds, not, you know, like, so, so my point is just like, there's, there's foundational theory. Like type is a good example too. What, and, and that comes to mind with the Apple thing that was brought up, which is like, you know, when Apple first came out and they created fonts, um, there were a lot of fake designers that came out of the woodwork and, and were like, <laughs> I'm going to do your, you know, thing. And it was amazing what they could do comparatively because they had access to every font. Like, I mean, at the time it felt like every font, but like they had right. 20 fonts. They didn't have to buy like linotype and, and like cut and paste. And it's like this crazy availability. But the problem with that is a lot of people jumped in 
and thought that typography was typing. And, um, <laughs> and then like what, what ends up happening is like, there's usually a little window where you can make a decent amount of money. You can make a killing for a little bit. Yeah. Um, when it, when automation happens and something's automated, but what happens is some of the old guys, some of the guys who know type get access to that powerful tool and then they they do what you do with your font, but their font's current, and it's perfectly current. <laughs> and and um, like their their typefaces have little adjustments, like little customizations that only a designer knows how to do. And just the and choice, so like, and just the choice of the typeface like fits the mood of the piece rather than just yeah. being like, I know the rule to pair serif with sans serif. Like they understand like the history of the typography itself and why you would yeah. use type from a specific decade and not a, you know, not another decade uh, because of the mood that you're trying to convey. Cause there's, it's, it's, it's the history of the thing that, that kind of comes yeah. in. I, I've got another one. I've got another one. So, so far we've talked about adaptability. Uh, I can't remember what we first talked about. Oh, learning, learning, just not, not just what, but why and how something does something um, foundational stuff. I've got another one. Pride cometh before the fall. And I and I think as soon as you become so wrapped up in your ability, and, and I've already told a story where I do this, that you're not willing to do the things that we're talking about, um, you're in trouble. And so if at any point in time you're like, I'm above learning something new, I'm you know, I already I already have the way that I do things and I'm I'm not even interested in talking to people about how they're doing it or you know, being curious. I'm no longer curious. You know, as soon as you become in your in your own mind so good that you don't need to learn anything anymore, um, you are ripe for destruction. You are you are yeah. you are a domino. You know, that is just teetering on the edge at that point in time because no matter what is happening, as soon as you decide that you don't have to change or learn or grow or improve anymore, you're dead, and the world will drive over your corpse. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'd also say like not only that, you're also like prone. You're heavily priming yourself for depression yeah, and for right. you know, um, for some serious like mental problems um, that that can result from just pride. And and it's it's amazing what happens. Um, like this actually happened in my first year of teaching. I think my first class, I was a little too like I'm the teacher. I know what I'm doing. And um, I quickly learned very, very fast. Um, like, luckily, a lot of teachers that had come before me gave me the tip, so I didn't come in too, too hot. But uh, a lot of them gave me the tip of like, of like, don't bullshit your way. Like, yeah. if you lie to students, they will see right through you. And not only that, they'll lose respect for you. If you don't know, say you don't know. And, um, and what's surprising is like, they'll, they'll accept you for it. And, um, I actually found that in my first year, like I thought oh, I'm going to have like, first off, I had like this conflicting thing of on one hand being like, do I have anything to teach people? Cause there's stuff I don't know, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and then on the other hand, I had like a, well, I've been at this for a long time. So I'm going to teach these kids how it's done, you know? And that part of me, that second part really quickly disappeared because you start realizing that in the process of teaching and I kind of envy Corey that you you're able to do this all the time because one of the beauties of teaching is you're constantly learning from your students. Yeah. Like they will show you things 
like Corey described, where he was just messing around on Photoshop and one of his instructors came up and was like, well, how'd you do that? Right. Like that instructor just walked away with a valuable tool, a, a trick that they can now apply um, a, among their giant arsenal of other tricks. And it's, and it's the same thing. Like I walked away from that class with like way more knowledge um, than I had starting because there were so many students who some of them had grown up with the program. And so they were more familiar with certain things than I was. And like that kind of thing is just so good for growth and for um, like, it's at the time it never feels good to say, I don't know. Um, But you know, you're, you're, you're sacrificing five seconds of ego for like what can literally make your life easier. By just being like, I don't know, what do you think? Like, you know, yeah. or like, I don't know, let's figure this out together, you know? Um, one one so thing yeah, that's I, super fascinating about that um, is, and I've, I've done stuff on this, so if you want to go look back through my videos, uh, Perry's Neurological Development in College Years is a, is a study of the neurological stages of development. And one of the things that I love about this current situation that I'm in is that the capstone, the 400-level class, the class that they take at the end, um, we've decided as a teaching group that even though one of us is teaching that, that all of us are going to show up to class. And I have a liberal arts degree. Um, There's a guy in there that has an MBA. There's another guy in there that is a programmer. And the three of us do not agree on things, and we're all right, which is really interesting because – one of the one of the highest levels of neurological development is to be able to um, be comfortable with ambiguity and understand and hold conflicting ideologies in your mind without going insane. Um, and so a lot of the students are like, well, what is the answer? Because they're used to 12 to 15 years of the authority figure saying, this is the answer. Put this answer down, repeat what I say, and I will give you all the points. But when in reality, um, you know, like, I, I say, well, in my experience, it's been like this, you know, and then this other guy says, you know, well, in my experience, that is completely wrong. And it's like this. Um, and then the other guy comes in and says, well, I've seen it happen like this. And and everybody goes, well, which one is right? And the answer is, they're all right. It depends on the situation. It depends yeah. on the, the niche in the marketplace that you land in. It depends on what it is that you're doing and who you're working with, what your goals are, and what you're trying to accomplish. And so... It's really interesting for them to see that there are definitely some wrong things, but there are almost an infinite number of right things, you know, because everybody's always looking for the answer or the path or whatever. And I think this talk about automation and the, in the future of robotics and AI is a really interesting thing because if you're coming to people for saying like, what should I do? What's the path that I should take? The fact of the matter is that one, no one knows. And two, there's probably thousands of different answers to that that will be correct. There's going to be some ones that are absolutely going to be the wrong thing to do. Um, But there are many, many right ways of doing it, which is kind of difficult because there's not an answer. But it's also like gives me hope in that if I'm doing things that make sense and I'm trusting, you know, my gut and my brain and I'm moving forward with effort probably going to be okay. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, the, the thing to just keep in mind as things get automated, like there, there might come a time 
where like what we're even talking about um, as like strengths, uh, like for instance, you know, um, critical thinking. Yeah. The second AI can do that, we're we're really in trouble. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what what I think what I think is something to kind of take take heart in and stuff as as automation happens. Um, like Squatchy in the chats has pointed out, it's going to hit tattooing. It's definitely going to hit illustration. Um, it's going to hit traditional, traditional painters even harder. I, I saw some stuff at Adobe Max with like a perfect watercolor emulation. And that's been one of the biggest weaknesses of digital painting is the inability to really mimic watercolor in the, in the way that the water actually runs and dries. Yeah. And uh, what's fascinating is they're, they're on it. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. So, so, what what I also would recommend too that I think just for sanity too is to kind of step back and realize like what you value because if if your whole value or your whole identity is based around um, like we're artists and we're passionate about art and we're passionate about creative projects and we're passionate about our own voice but it's really important not to mix that with your identity entirely because. Um, you know, tomorrow, like literally I could get in a car accident and, um, lose both my hands and not be able to draw. Um, and then where am I, you know? And that's, to me, that's a horror show. Like that's a frightening scenario. Even the stuff our friend Mike had to go through with losing the ability to use his hand for a little bit to draw like that just, um, that like I used to have nightmares about that all the time. Um, but I think one of the things that's important is to realize, like, what is a value um, and have have a value that's outside of the uh, the weird little thing thing we do. Um, and within that, <clears throat> what's the truly valuable thing? Um, and I and I th- personally think, like, you know, we'd, we'd probably all agree on the idea that the idea, the concept, the creative thinking, that's the part that um, I think is going to be very difficult to automate. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's the part that um, is, is very exciting because it's like, that's, that, that's what we all want to do. We all want to tell stories and we, and we were drawn to vulnerability. We're drawn to things that are human, things that are flawed. Like I don't like, um, I don't tend to like stories with perfect characters unless they play that for like the whole, um, like the perfect character who's, who's the outcast. Like right. that's very interesting when it does like the day the earth stood still the original, not the remake um, kind of thing where it's like a pretty fairly perfect being just kind of is freaked out by how weird everybody is and <laughs> violent and crazy they are. Yeah. Um, but I think in general, like those imperfections are, are something to kind of um, take pride in. And, and at the same time, um, you know, just once again, like having your value based on your own person as a human being as opposed to just like i can draw therefore i have value <laughs> you know because right. that's a dangerous path is all i'm getting at you know yeah because yeah. if you if you define yourself by your skills and ability uh you know that's that's something that can be taken away but your thinking is is much more difficult i mean you know there are diseases and injuries and things that can that can destroy your thinking but i mean at that point in time you know, but if as long as long as you can think, um, you know, then you can adapt. So, and there's there's tons of, there's tons of stories with that. But uh, yeah. but yeah. So Scott, what what do you uh, 
what do you think? Any any more uh, any more predictions, tips, tricks, pitfalls that you can think of in in the coming uh, global collapse when the robots take over? I don't know. I mean, it's I it's just I think it's my biggest. I guess my biggest fear is that I am just going to be because right now I can. I don't know. I'm definitely not ahead of the technology, but I'm at least like, like right now I'm just now getting into doing more digital drawing, which I've always done digital stuff, but now it's like even processes that I solely did traditionally. Now I'm starting to do digitally, but I'm just afraid I'm going to get to a point where it's so beyond my grasp that I'm just going to fall behind because everyone, you know, so many people get to that age where it's just like, now I don't even understand it. I don't even know where to begin. So yeah. that's kind of like my fear is that it's just going to get too far ahead of me. So like, I know the whole, I, I don't know what the, the term for it is, but like the, what's the technology that like, um, like Siri and uh, Amazon Echoes and all that kind of stuff where you just you just say, I want this, and then it happens, and how to... Because pretty soon that's going to be the way people get all their information. Right. And for me to promote myself, so a way when somebody says, hey, uh, Siri, I'm looking for a cool artist that does this, for me to pop up there when, yeah. when that happens. I don't even know the first... I don't know the first step in, in advertising something like that to, to get myself, you know, in front of that type of technology. Um, so I worry about stuff like that, that it's just, you know, that I'm eventually it's just going to be like, yeah, I'm just, I, I can't catch up. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a coworker, there's a coworker of mine that's in his seventies and is in, in certain niches, a world renowned oil painter. And, and he was talking to me, because I teach mostly digital illustration and design. And he said, man, I don't even know how to use any of that stuff. And he said, I've thought about, you know, I've thought about learning Photoshop. And I was like, why? Why would you bother? You know? And I said, I mean, you, you command hundreds of thousands of dollars for commissions. You know, why would you, what, what is the point? You know, what is the point of, of, and he's like, yeah, that's kind of what, that's kind of the conclusion I've come to. So, I mean, at a, in a certain, in a certain aspect, you know, being on the bleeding edge of technology, like, great, you win the, you win the booby prize of whatever, getting in some magazine or, you know, being on some talk show at some point, but like, you know, being solidly able to create, um, and use the tools to create however the tools change, then when the tools change, you're still you rather than you being an excellent practitioner of a tool. I, I think, I think that's more valuable. I understand what you're saying from a marketing standpoint. I think marketing's a whole different, whole different thing, but I got so one of these. Sorry. Yeah, I don't want to be the newspaper guy where that yeah. is holding on to, uh, you know, newspaper while everything passes them by and they're like, Oh, it's too late now. Yeah. Well, well, one of the one of the assignments I used to teach for for my intro to Photoshop class that I taught um, was was mimicking Bob Stack with just the uh, selection tools and um, like a dither and and like just the paint bucket. Like I even had him use the paint bucket, which you know it's. I just wanted to start out by showing them um, what's possible at the at at like 1.0. Like, yeah. and because a lot of that, 
um, it's interesting, but like there's this, the, I guess Bob Stack up until two years ago was using like the second version of Photoshop, and yet he was doing New Yorker covers. He was doing editorial illustrations for the biggest um, companies out there, uh, getting paid thousands and thousands of dollars for his art, and yet um, and competing, you know, with a bunch of digital illustrators trying to work in Bob Stack's style. And and he was doing most of it using the selection tools, the paint bucket, and dithering. And it's like it's insane when you look at his art, what he was able to pull off with that. Yeah. So I think there is something to be said for um, – I think that just kind of backs up the idea of, like, the foundations don't change. And if you get really good at the foundations, um, I think you can, you can outlast, um, you know, changed modes because those are phases – like, look at what happened with hand lettering. Hand lettering is is a, a thing people are scrambling to learn how to do, and there's only a few experts left, not not myself not included at all, um, in that field that, that, like, I would kill to, like, spend, like, a good, you know, hour and a half watching, uh, like, one-on-one being mentored by someone who, you know, did, like, uh, painted signage on yeah. Windows. And yet the, that that's dying out so much that the people who can do it command a skill that is just um, remarkable, and I think people are still willing to kind of pay for. I think also, like, I think there's a key thing to what you were saying, Scott, too, which is the admitting not knowing. It, you know, like, because I, I share those fears too, man. Like, I my, when I look at my kid <laughs> and he's on, a, on the iPad, there was this one point where I felt like an old man and he he was like three at the time, and he pressed a button on her iPad, and it appeared on the TV. I didn't even know it could do that. I didn't know that button existed. I didn't know it synced up with your television, and my three-year-old figured it out. Wow. <laughs> and then we had to kind of reverse engineer what he did to try to figure that out. Um, and I was like, oh, man, that's like I'm one step away. Like, my son's three, and I'm already, like, the person who's like, what button do I hit on the remote? You know, <laughs> like, it's inevitably, like, the generation um, coming up is going to be more technologically savvy and stuff. But imagine what can happen if you, like, show them, hey, here's how you feather with a brush, though. You know? Yeah. Like, and, that's and, something doesn't go away, you know? So. And, and I, I, you know... It's not only, as far as the hand lettering, it's not only the old guard that are still doing it because younger people are figuring out how to do that themselves. They're going back to those old techniques and learning how to do it because everyone wants to learn how to do that. So that's yeah. that's kind of cool too is that what, what, old, what is old is kind of new again. Yeah. And, and I think, I think, so if we're going for, you know, survival tips uh, in, in the coming apocalypse, I think the, the, this last section could be summed up with a good balance between, um, you know, a, a adapting and learning and changing and also embracing kind of the past and the foundational things. Because I think if you, you know, refuse to learn anything new because you're so steeped in, you know, I just work in charcoal and that's it. It's like, well, you know, maybe you could, you know, like pick up more work or, or get a bigger audience or, or do incredibly amazing things with your art or produce it faster if you just tried X, Y, and Z and you're like, no. But then on the other hand, um, I'm, I'm at the cutting edge. I've, I've, you know, I make tutorials, you know, and I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm at the bleeding edge. I'm on all the beta tests of this software. 
Um, but I don't make anything myself and I'm not, you know, I, I can't come up with a decent idea. I'm not a good writer. I, I can't concept well, you know, like that's useless. You know, what, what are you, you're, you're just going to be training other people, you know, to yeah. do stuff. And in the middle is somebody who is, you know, has a decent respect and understanding for how things are done traditionally and is also constantly, you know, adopting and seeking out, um, through curiosity and learning new practices. Um, yeah. That balance, I think, is really important because uh, too much to either either extreme um, becomes detrimental because you, you're just hunkered down in your bunker waiting for yep. the end at that point. Yeah, and I, I think that would apply to modes of thinking too because um, like that same balance. So I think um, uh, like, like a, a good cap to like the last point was is the idea of like seeking mastery um because like mastery doesn't get replaced easily um in 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 creative fields um and so it's like you know if uh like like once again i you know we we could bring up like i'm gonna bring up chris ware again um but like chris ware was one of those artists that he had this line style, single line style, at the, uh, and it became really popular. It was on all sorts of magazines and um, different album covers and stuff like that, like all over the market. With this guy, who was like using it looked like Illustrator, and everybody was impressed because it was about the time where that single line style was really popular in Illustrator. But then you find out it's not a, it's not Illustrator; it's a ruling pen, and the guy's like killing it on every gig. Um, competing with these kids who are like doing, uh, trying to do that style, um, you know, digitally. So it's it's possible to to kind of have the fine line between both, you know. Yeah. So. Okay, so it's an uh, hour and twenty minutes in. Final Oof. final thoughts. Um, yeah, I'm afraid if I keep talking, we're just going to keep going longer. Right. So. Yeah. I, was, I was the only thing I was going to comment was what Josh was saying was the cool thing about technology along with that old school stuff is that I, I think now you can record those tech that that technique to show people because if it's something that can be uh, accomplished fairly easy digitally, but you're showing somebody, yeah, but look what he's actually doing. Look at the craft that goes into this and you can show that. Like anytime you, if you ever want to see something cool, now this is digital work, but if you watch the process of a DKG illustration, they record everything and you watch how it's done. It's just like, wow. I mean, people are blown away where, you know, you were talking about this with your work. Well, you were talking about this too, Corey, where if you just show somebody how it's done and they don't realize what goes into it, but it's the same thing like with at your work, Josh, where people just think, oh, it's magic. It doesn't take that long. Um, but if you can kind of show them that whole, that craft, people then start to appreciate it a little more. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of which, stay tuned uh, because I've got, a, I've got a video coming up uh, every day for the rest of the month that does exactly that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think, I think that was great. Um, we've got people uh, screaming at each other in binary in the chat. And so I think, <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a good uh, good chat there. I appreciate everybody who who showed up. Um, and I failed to load uh, Scott's 
website in, so you'll hear it audibly but not see it visually. Um, if you want to check out Scott Circlin's work, then go to cirqueworks.com. That's S-E-R-K-S works.com. It's got all kinds of goodies there, including some free tools um, that you can use to jumpstart and get started. Make sure you understand not just what they do but why they do that thing. And then uh, you can check out Joshua Kemble's work at quarterlystories.com. Um, he's got an awesome... Uh, comic, and he is actually working on two comics right now. And if you want to see the pages that he's working on and the progress that he has, uh, go stalk him on uh, Instagram because that's awesome. And you can check out my stuff at CoreyKerr.com. And I am currently uh, in the middle of doing a comic for the 100 Days Anthology as well as doing Sticker Stint, uh, doing both of those things. And if you'd like to follow along with those, uh, YouTube. Instagram and Twitter is the place to be for that. And as always, if you want to check out the podcast version of what you are now watching or possibly listening to in the future, um, you can always go to CoreyKerr.com slash 48HR, 48HR, and that will give you uh, kind of uh, the video and the edited audio in case you just want to kind of get the uh, the trimmed down version. All right. We will see you guys in a couple days. We're out. Bye.